The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss the Labour leadership election and why Jess Phillips pulled out. We talk about the curious survival of the Welsh Labour Party and whether or not that survival is threatened. And you ask us, could Lisa Nandy win? And then there were four. One of the Labour leadership candidates has dropped out. Jess Phillips brought an end to her campaign this week. Alva, you wrote a very good and interesting analysis about that campaign and what went wrong with it. Yeah, cheerio, Jess. I think I, I think probably people who've been following the race closely saw it coming because of her performance at the first Labour Party hustings with members, uh, which she was so bad that she described herself as awful in a piece in The Guardian. I mean, my, my own take on it is that she was just really unprepared for the realities of frontline politics, basically, with all the respect in the world for someone who's prepared to put themselves through that process and go for it. I think that, you know, she is a very specific skill set as a Corbyn sceptic backbencher where she carved a niche for herself as a very articulate and arguably quite relatable Corbyn critic and got a lot of traction for that and and you know was had that reinforced time and again and then also you know it was decided that she's very likable because she could do you know sort of cushy newspaper interviews that were quite well received and I think that was taken as evidence that she could run for leader and had the full skill set of political communication and leadership which she just didn't quite have and then she just crumbled when she came into contact with an actual leadership contest. Yeah, and especially this leadership contest mm. in particular, because, as you say, there is the entire, the general failures of the Jess Phillips pitch and Jess Phillips' approach to, to, to a leadership election, right, as you as you wrote well yesterday, and as Stephen has written as well, or uh, have you filed that piece yet? Uh, so the piece will have existed Exclusive. by the... I'm busting the embargo on Stephen's <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, it requires being a good opposition politician, i.e. a frontline opposition politician, where you carry the party behind you rather than being a faction fighter, even if that faction is a faction of one, aka Jess Phillips, requires a, it's, you know, it's a skilled, it's a skilled profession. But quite apart from that, 
compare Jess Phillips's route to the ballot, i.e. the non-existent one, to Lisa Nandy's, Jess Phillips, as you know, Corbyn sceptics who were around her campaign are now starting to admit today, now that the Kool-Aid has started to wear off a little bit, that there was a real strategic error they made and that Lisa Nandy knew what she wanted. She wanted a big union to get her over the 5% affiliated membership threshold, a small union and a another affiliate. And Lisa Nandy worked all three of them hard, the GMB, the National Union of Mine Workers and Chinese for Labour, and got them. And it isn't immediately clear that Jess Phillips went into the race thinking, OK, I can get onto the ballot fire, you know, if I, you know, go hell for leather, go up to Manchester. No, it's us door in Manchester. Is community also in Manchester? Anyway, go up to Manchester, but beat a path to the door of a big trade union, say, look, this is my pitch, blah, 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 blah. Go to the musicians' union and do the same thing and have a note on the Guinness with the chairman of the Labour Party Irish Society. That doesn't seem to have happened. And is that what you would do if you ran for Labour leader? Labour Irish Society in the back. Well, I spend a lot of time with the Labour Party Irish Society anyway, so I, I hope <laughs> I ever run for office in the Labour Party. I, yeah, so one of the things I've said say in this piece is that in many ways, Jess Phillips's candidacy is symptomatic of the way that the Corbyn leadership has melted the brains of quite a lot of people in the Labour Party, right? Uh, uh, both poles uh, oh, of the yeah, party, both, yeah. yeah. Then on the one hand, you have like this way that Ian Lavery, and they are not politicians of comparable qualities or, or lack thereof, right? Ian Lavery, a man who's been dogged by allegations about his, well, which yeah, uh, which you can just find by Googling the words Patrick Maguire, Ian Lavery Times, about, you know, his conduct of, of, of the NUM, who was did not did not back Diane Abbott in 2015, did not back Jeremy Corbyn in 2015, somehow being seen as an acceptable alternative by some people on the left of the party to Becky Long-Bailey, uh, a significantly better, impressive, more funny record of actually doing successful party management over the Green New Deal, purely because Ian Lavery has, you know, in in a northern accent, said some mean things about Blairite. And then with Jess Phillips, you have someone right at the beginning of their career. So one of the things that I, I write in this blog is that when the Shadow Communications Agency, which was the kind of organisation of volunteer communications professionals run by Philip Gould and Deborah Mattinson, did their focus groups on the Shadow Treasury team in 1987, about, yeah, because they were trying to get people to basically go, look, don't worry, Labour, don't worry, we're not going to take all of your money. And, you know, John Smith comes on, they're like, love him, brilliant, brilliant, amazing, great guy, really solid. You know, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, a little known man named Gordon Brown, they're like, oh, you know, hunky, but in a way that he's ready to lead. And then um, the Shadow Economic Minister, Economy Minister comes on, they're like, who's this Bambi-like guy? I would never vote Labour in a million years. And the guy, the name of that minister was Tony Blair. Now, like, the, the, the important, the, the point here is, like, being an effective opposition leader is difficult. The reason why, you know, whenever like whenever someone like stops me in the street and they'll go like, yeah, what's so and so like? Someone I've been on TV with, and they go like, they go like, why doesn't that person become a Tory MP or why doesn't that person become a Labour MP? Mm. They were so much more impressive than the front bencher. Well, because ultimately, like when like someone who's like a commentator goes on television, they can just say what they think. They don't have to go, oh, here's the line, here's that focus group, here's that bit of the party I can't piss off, here's that person who I'd love to fire but I can't get rid of. All of those things are really difficult political jobs. And because... And this is actually a really difficult inheritance for whoever the next leader is, right? We've had a five-year period in which, one, there has not been, for various reasons, a normal parliamentary calendar for the whole of the five years, right? Everyone in the 2015 and 2017 intake, which thanks to both, and indeed 2019 intakes, which thanks to 
the large losses suffered by the Labour Party in 2015, the Labour Party in 2019, the Tory Party in 2017, plus retirements, that's quite a large chunk of this Parliament does not know what it's like to have to do a sitting Thursday or a sitting Friday. Most people in the Labour Party, right, because the direction from the centre to backbench is about like, oh, I'm doing the local press, what messages do I have on education has been non-existent. Quite a lot of them have got quite used to enjoying freelancing. Some of them have started to believe the ability to freelance eloquently is the same as the skill set required to lead an opposition party. And that is going to be a really difficult sort of psychology to unpick. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I do say in this piece is, and I think, actually, to Jess Phillips's credit, unlike some of the people who backed her and some of her kind of boosters in the commentariat, correctly identified that she lacked some of the prerequisites to be an effective leadership at this point in her career. Mm. But it does kind of sum up this weird way that, like, political parties, like, eat their own young Mm. by, like, deciding that someone who's been in Parliament four years and never been in the dispatch box should run for leader is just a good way to destroy that person's reputation. Yeah, she's a victim of her own success, really, because... People like her haven't just been freelancing because of the unusual way that Parliament has been run recently, but also because there's very little loyal. Well, there has been very little loyalty to party leaders over the past few years with Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn in charge. So people have been basically able to break the party line and speak out. And it's not even news anymore when MPs do that, which yeah. which, um, you know, we, we can all remember. It used to be news when you interviewed an MP and they sp- spoke out yeah. against their leader. But now now it's really hard to get news lines because of that kind of atmosphere. And she She's been, you know, a particularly popular voice for doing that kind of thing. And she's she is a pundit. You know, she hasn't had to follow a line. She hasn't had to really, you know, defend a policy platform ever because she's never really been in a job like that. And also, like you said, Alva, the the press and broadcasters have kind of given her an easy ride because they only want her to come on and say something mean, but straight talking about Jeremy Corbyn Mm. or whatever. And then, you know, job done. So. She was very good at that, but that didn't translate onto this. But I would argue that she she kind of knew that from the start, you know, that her Mm. team sort of were saying that they there was an acceptance that Keir Starmer was the most likely to actually win this contest or or Keir Starmer or Rebecca Long-Bailey from the start. And she was she was almost doing the Corbyn thing when Corbyn was running for leader. Mm. She's got more people to join. She's done the straight talking, different kind of politics message, which Jeremy Corbyn also had. And Jeremy Corbyn didn't think that he could win at the beginning. And I don't think she could either. Well, Well, you see, my impression is that, I mean, it's hard to know the inner psychology of people on a leadership campaign. But my impression was that people genuinely did think that she could win and, mm-hmm. and maybe would win because I think, as you say, I think the tactic, you know, Patrick, you were asking, you know, whether she was planning on courting unions and affiliates or whether she was going down the CLP route. And the impression I got was that they did think they could win by getting lots of members to join and doing some sort of grassroots movement where mm. she travels around the country and, and like thanks to this huge influx of members did manage to get 33 nominations from local parties and I think they really did believe in that you know in her ability to be straight talking and to be fair to those people and to other MPs who did support her I don't think that they are entirely wrong I mean I think that you know, we're all in agreement that she needed other skills and, you know, probably wasn't in a in a good position to run right now. But I think that that idea that, you know, she is straight talking and she has cut through is, well, at least in the focus group that was on Channel 4 News last night, you know, it did it does seem to work with people. And there is a sense that, you know, Keir Starmer, for example, is a bit corporate, a bit too like David mm-hmm. Cameron. And in terms of the the qualities people are looking for in a political leader. She did sort of seem to evidence them. So I, so that isn't to entirely disregard why people liked her. 
uh, sorry, something I'm not really sure about mm. why Jess Phillips' parliamentary backers liked her, though, right, is that the tragedy of this campaign, if you are Jess Phillips or if you are one of the MPs on the soft left who in private would say, you know, like, we're going to be out of power for 10 years. I mean, these aren't people who nominated it, but, you know, a couple of times I spoke to people who said, would the worst thing in the world be to just sort of see what happened with Jess? She's actually quite left-wing on some issues. And, you know, if you look mm. bore down into the policy detail of a pitch, it was all about, I'm really liberal on immigration. I am all for universal public services. And one of the big failures of the Corbyn leadership was it backed tax cuts for high earners. Okay, and that's a good member-friendly policy platform if Jess Phillips had sold herself as the person who can communicate that rather than, I'm Jess Phillips. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's it. Um, but sort of like, yeah, okay, but, I, but what I don't understand is how did the Labour right, i.e. the people who concluded after 2015, Labour right is an imperfect term, but like, mm. you know, all about fiscal rectitude, blah, 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 we need to be trusted on these questions. You know, if you'd said, as we've said before, Stephen, you know, someone, a, a Corbyn sceptic in 2016, okay, your chosen candidate to make this stop in 2020 will be the candidate of open borders, taxes on high earners and free childcare for everybody. It's sort of like what... But, well, I think it's because in, in many ways to see the, the pattern of those nominations as an ideological vector is to sort of misread the... Because like ultimately, you know, the, the one thing I kind of disagreed with in your piece, Alva, is uh, ultimately right, the, the Labour right has two perfectly viable candidates in this race. Like, I, I know that a bunch of people mm. on the soft left are kidding themselves than actually they have a better idea what's in Lisa Nandy's heart than the MPs who've backed her from the beginning, but they're wrong. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, they just are, right? You know, real talk, just as the people who thought Jeremy Corbyn was actually a secret Remainer were wrong. Keir Starmer, again, you know, like, yeah, is, is, is someone from the middle of the party, has lots of support from the right of the party. In many ways, what unifies those people is, yes, they're all people from the right of the party or, you know, the the centre-left of, of British politics as a whole. But what they are, crucially, is they're people who, for whom Keir won't do uh, because he was on the front bench, because in many cases they feel that he, he, he came to the second referendum position reluctantly, belatedly, had to be forced there. And I think in another way you kind of have a coming together of people around Jess who urged her to run because of her sort of personal qualities as a salesperson people on the right of the party who wanted a candidate. I mean, I think the very fact that you hesitated over the term right of the party, which, like, the, the, the right of the party is like vogue doctrine among parts of it, is that, um, is to stop calling themselves that because that will fix the problem. And, and then they can <laughs> lean into this sort of, hey, but we're for universalism in childcare or whatever. So, yeah. You know, yeah, but, like, ultimately, I am to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, right? Therefore, if you I were in the Labour, if I were in the Labour Party, I would be on the right of the Labour. That's quite literally how a compass. Uh, that's how directions work. Yeah, you know, like it's kind of like it's like if you went into a room on the left hand of the street and someone went, "It's on the left," you wouldn't start going. Everywhere in this house is on the right. <laughs> God damn. I mean, because that's that's not how political positioning works. And again, like these people need to read, actually read some of the stuff Tony Blair wrote. You can't escape your basic positioning as being on the left, the right, or the centre. And if you're on the centre and you're in the Tory party, that means you're on the left of the Tory party. If you're on the left-wing party and you're in the centre, you're on the right of the left. Again, how do Fair these enough. people use cars? <laughs> but I think, you know, the kind of, the lack of intellectual self-confidence to feel that you can't go, of course, I'm on the right of the party, right? Oh, yeah. Like this, this idea, like, you know, like say Yvette Cooper, who's backing Keir Starmer. Do you think Yvette Cooper, like having like spent ages like talking to like Dennis Healy about how to politically effective is going to turn around and go the right of the party me no never should go yeah of course 
I don't believe in like, you know, I don't believe that the problem for Jeremy Corbyn was that he didn't want to tax people on 40k. You know, like, I'm sorry, that is an insane position for for people on the right of the party to have got themselves into. You know, the idea that like, yeah, I just feel like, so to take like Pat McFadden, someone who I have a lot of time for and hugely respect, right? But when Pat McFadden was working for Tony Blair in Downing Street, Jess Phillips was not even a Labour Party member. And I just think the idea that... that she I, was marching with Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, no, I just, I just think this thing is, I just think like ultimately like, it's part of a kind of loss of intellectual self-confidence to feel like, okay, but you you can't stand and go, here are our ideas, here's why we think they're relevant. It's like, well, we have to hitch them to, we have to hitch ourselves to someone who feels the same about this leadership. Even though, I mean, yeah, it's like the number of pieces like, you know, Labour has has said goodbye to a guaranteed winner. Again, you know, Stephen's horrendous right-wing opinions coming to the fore alert. I do not believe for a moment that the way the Labour Party would have won would have been someone who in the course of their very short campaign said that taxes should have been higher than that proposed under Jeremy Corbyn. The, the Labour Party should have been pro the legalisation, had it been open to a, a, com, a more frank conversation about the legalisation of drugs than it had under Jeremy Corbyn. That it needed to be open to rejoining the EU. Like, I'm sorry, like, that, that, like, if that is Blairism in the 21st century, like, what has happened? Well, this is like, the, like, as you say, this is, the, this is the problem with Corbyn. I mean, there are lots of victims of Corbynism in terms of their ability to do politics on both sides of the Labour Party. But I think this is, in a, in a nutshell, right, it's convinced a load of people who, as we've said, their ideological interests were not served by this leadership, either existing or by them supporting it, that being a loud Corbyn sceptic is the same as being mm. an effective politician and also an effective politician of that particular faction, which have interests beyond simply Jeremy Corbyn not existing. The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Joined in this week. <laughs> Lovely. Anoush, the, the question is Can Lisa and Andy win? So, this is the Labour leadership election, just for kind of avoidance of doubt. Who'd like to go first? I feel impelled to say yes without showing my working or indeed knowing what my working <laughs> would be. I just think we've all saw, we all saw the Channel 4 focus group last night where, where Lisa and Andy was heralded as the great Lancastrian hope of the Labour Party. Last time I said Wigan was in Lancashire, I got lots of angry tweets, but it's always 1973 in my head. Greater Manchester does not exist. Yeah, I, I, I think she can win. Whether she will win is another question. You know, Unite nominate on Friday. It could be up for grabs. It's very much not up for grabs. She can so win, of yes. course. Yes. Alvin. I think she 
can win. There's nothing really to stop her. She's on the ballot. Um, all she needs to do is get enough votes from members at this point. Um, you know, <laughs> I made that sound easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think... If I were Lisa Nandy, I would simply get 43%. I would simply, uh, I would simply, more simply get more first preference votes than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think probably what, what might happen is that we'll be at a point where we're, we have sort of Nandy mania in that lots of people in the commentariat are saying how good she is, which is sort of already happening, that she's a very good media performer, that she's very likable, that she's like the great white hope of the Labour Party. And then we don't know how much that trickles down to the members and we'll, and the conversation will be trying to work out how much that is the case. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, that that's the big challenge. She's still not really known by people. And, and as you said in your morning call this morning, you know, probably most most Labour members are still quietly looking at the options and quietly deciding that they still like Keir Starmer despite the noise suggesting otherwise. I think she is still kind of stuck in the same problem that we identified earlier on in her campaign which is okay she's being talked up a lot and she's created a buzz and momentum around her campaign which means more people have heard of her but still most members don't really know much about her but now her media coverage has been saturated and that can mean that she's reached a peak in her coverage and it can also mm. piss people off as well I think you know a bit like Clegg mania almost people are reading a lot about this person who's performed well in interviews and is somehow amazing but they still don't really understand who she is or why mm. and I think that can be quite alien particularly to ordinary Labour members who don't know a huge amount about politics. It looks like they're being told something by sort of the powers that be or the, the tastemakers. We know from, from the membership in general, obviously the membership shouldn't be just generalised about, but they they don't really like to take orders from, from above at the moment. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... So I think the answer is yes to kind of... So we've got four out of four. Mm-hmm. But in, in fact, if I were to put percentage figures on it, I basically feel like Keir has, what, a 60% chance of making it. I actually find, I feel I find it easier to conceive of how Lisa Nandy could become Labour leader than Becky Long-Bailey at this point, right? Because, right, it feels to me that the path to, to Lisa Nandy becoming leader of the Labour Party is that she's on the ballot now, the televised hustings which will matter will be on the BBC, right? That is the, that is the, that is the thing which can shift votes. Mm. And then she does that. I kind of think, you know, the, the focus group, you know, I mean, I love focus groups. I love to sit on them, but... I I think that generalising from one focus yeah, group yeah, yeah. Is, is is a highly flawed exercise. Yeah, I mean, like we we don't know, for example, to what extent the even though what happened with the flag was reported in an unfair way, and she sent loads and loads of very banal photos with very banal captions that day. We don't know the extent to which, say, Emily Thornberry, the other person who did really well in that focus group, how that would be weaponized and what effect that would have on those voters, right? But crucially, the thing that I think that focus group does tell us is it provides yet more evidence that if you put Lisa Nandy in front of a camera, most of the time people who watch it will leave being like, mm, she seems nice and like she knows what she's about. Yeah. And so for me, the question is, on this BBC hustings, I can find it so easy to imagine a situation in which, like, Keir is just a bit average, Becky is just a bit average, Emily is very impressive, but everyone kind of knows that about her. You know, she's well-known among members, she's well-known among everyone. And then Lisa Nad is very impressive, and she's new and shiny, and she gets into second place, gets the second preferences of whoever's in third, and she wins the leadership that way. That feels 
plausible to me. Whereas I just find it so hard at the moment to work out how. Like Becky Long Bailey's campaign started by going, my dividing line is the Green New Deal. When the achievement of Becky Long Bailey's front bench career was getting the Green New Deal to a point where all of the stakeholders who might object to it, i.e. the trade unions, were happy with it. Which means there is there is nothing in her policy thing, I mean, Bobby, that, you know, like, literally there is no one in the PLP who would not be able to, if that is the test of whether or not you are Corbynite, go, the Green New Deal, I'm fine with it. Yeah, it's right. literally a non-divisive yeah. dividing yeah, like it's just Yeah, like, it's, just like, it's just like, well done, you have fundamentally misunderstood the point of a point of contrast. Then her new point of contrast is open selections. Now, you know, bluntly, and this is of course where I allow the fact I'm not in the Labour Party but have lived in very safe seats most of my life to colour my thinking, I'm sure, it feels to me ludicrous that the last meaningful vote on who the MP in Stoke Newington was, was, you know some Labour members, many of whom are now dead in 1987, <laughs> right? However, people don't care. Even the people who are for it don't care about it. Yeah, yeah. Also, and also that, the people who are for it are surely already for her. Yeah, I'm not it, sure if it's going like, to win around her. people who are kind of tempted by Lisa Nandy. And, and, and also, I mean, given the experience we just had with trigger ballots, one, I think, if there was, a, you know, a, if members were so thirsty to deselect loads of MPs, they would have done it when they were given the chance, albeit, OK, it would have been trickier. To, it's trickier to do so with the trigger ballots and the thresholds, although much easier than it ever has been, given the thresholds been reduced. And two, I mean, even people, even some people on the left will say, well, that was a massive waste of time and energy when we could have been getting ready for an election. I just think there is now recognition, having done a sort of easier trigger process once, that actually there are more productive things Labour members can be doing than looking, and Labour MPs can be doing than looking inward for you know a year, two years of their parliamentary terms. Yeah, I feel yeah, obviously a, a win for anyone but the, but Keir Starmer, right? Like all of the data suggests Keir, then both those YouGov polls are correct. Then Keir Starmer is significantly ahead in the Labour leadership election, right? So anything other than Keir would be surprising. But if a time traveller came in through the door of the podcast catacomb and went, <laughs> Lisa Nandy is leader of the Labour Party, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I, I, I don't feel any of us would struggle to explain that. Yeah. Whereas I feel like if um, someone bust in and went, Becky Long Bailey is leader of the Labour Party, we'd all be like, oh, Please so... Please stay a minute. And yeah, yeah we, have, yeah, we have a couple of follow-up questions. And that... Well, so the group think is in. We yeah. all think. Oh, I mean, I guess the, I guess the problem for Nandi is that she has a great campaign, but say the same with as you know, I'm nicking this from you, but Bernie Sanders, right? The the point at which Bernie Sanders released that really good party political broadcast, where you know it was him looking avuncular and lots of children skipping around, and Simon and Garfunkel's America was playing in the background. Like Hillary Clinton had already, the die was already classified for Hillary Clinton at that point. Hillary had already won Super Tuesday. I feel like Nandi might have a brilliant campaign and her numbers might tick up. But ultimately, most of the televised hustings will happen after the first weekend of the campaign at which most people voted, right? Yeah, and the other reason I keep kind of saying, like, is she our Bernie, is that the government is in this kind of holding pattern until it does it does its budget, right, in which it has a bunch of, of policy that cannot be reconciled with it with, with its objectives. Keir is doing the kind of classic, I'm the front runner. I'm going to talk about my background. I'm not going to box myself in with any commitment. Which means we're all kind of desperate to talk about something. And that kind of means do we all kind of collectively as an industry like level in on Lisa Nandy in the same way that... So obviously Bernie can win the nomination this time. It was very clear from very early on that he just like the structure of Hillary Clinton's coalition and the structure of his coalition just meant that it was not going to happen. But it was exciting. It drove a lot of traffic. And once again, I kind of wonder, like, is it just that that 
engine of Nandy Mania among the membership is a group of people who are quite online, who engage with things. Because the thing I find really striking is, is on Twitter, I see a lot of people who are like, why are you being so bearish or whichever the bad animal is about, about Lisa Nandy? <laughs> the emails I get from reader, yeah. readers are like, why are you guys trying to make Lisa Nandy happen? And, I'm, and I kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely, definitely right. So we spoke a few weeks ago about the union and the implications of the general election for that, but we didn't discuss Wales because Stephen was actually in Wales at the time. What were you doing there, Stephen? So I was doing, as I realised, has weirdly become customary, my post-Labour defeat (laughs) meeting with the First Minister. The First Minister has changed, the defeat has become considerably worse, (laughs) but broadly the... The, and actually, the other the way, journey's just as nice. Yeah, the journey's just as nice. <laughs> nicer now. They've got the new trains. <laughs> yeah, they've got. Yeah, the journey's actually a lot nicer. Although, weirdly, despite the fact I go to Cardiff really quite regularly, I still every time I'm surprised by the new BBC building. It's just like, well, I wasn't expecting it to be here the last fifty times, but <laughs> but this time I really thought that it would have gone again. So Welsh politics is in this kind of deeply odd place in lots of ways. In the in many ways, Mark Drakeford, the first minister, uh, hello if you're listening this week, Mark, both physically and politically is kind of like, feels like the sort of last vanguard of like a type of very successful European social democracy, which doesn't really exist, right? You talk to him and he's very cerebral, very interesting. If his name was like Mark Driftsesson, you can kind of imagine him becoming head of an NGO or the World Bank after he stopped being prime minister of a small, mid-sized Finnish nation. But of course, that type of social... <laughs> Social Democrat (laughs) everywhere else has been being defeated in this kind of like, yeah, this kind of all your votes must go, you know, to the Greens to one side, populist right, yeah, to centre right, to another, yeah, sort of a populist left party, right? That miraculous feature in many ways of British politics is perversely, it's superficially most boring feature, which is the political survival of the Welsh Labour Party (laughs) as a hegemonic uh, entity. Now, and the other way it was like 2015 is, um, yeah, in 2015, the kind of first question afterwards sort of done the kind of like flammery Then I asked Carwin Jones was, you've just had a very bad election result in Wales with the caveat of for the Welsh Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Will it happen again? You know, most of Mark Drake's cabinet is from North Wales. They're in this weird situation where for the first time ever, I think, the governing coalition explicitly knows that it is running for re-election as a coalition, right? There is no one else who is going to ally with the Welsh Labour Party to form another government. Plaid Cymru has decided that its interests it thinks are served by getting them out. The Conservatives, of course, not going to go into coalition with them. This Labour, Liberal Democrat government is the only way that either of those two parties are going to continue to be in office. So that's kind of the sort of political context in terms of, yeah, like the, yeah, the kind of, I think lots of us kind of think like, well, at some point, this miraculous survival has, yeah, like, yeah, at some point, the trend reaches everywhere, right? Equally, in some ways, the 2019 election was a bit of a, not a bit of, I don't know why I'm weasel working. The 2019 election did prove uh, that people like me, and in, indeed some people who were very close to the last Westminster, who spent ages going, hmm, doesn't look like the Welsh Labour is, is ready to deal with the sort of challenge of Adam Price, you know, a new, more telegenic uh, leader of Plaid Cymru. Oh, he's going to cause them real trouble. Now, the thing which I thought was really interesting in this general election is that you had a debate with Becky Long-Bailey and the leaders of the Welsh Party, in which Becky Long-Bailey, well, to be honest, she did what you'd expect an English politician to do, which is that she effectively gave Adam Price the freedom of Wales. He said a bunch of things that a Welsh Labour Labour AM, who was across the detail of what the devolved government does, would have gone, "Uh, that's not really accurate, Uh, that's a bit unfair. And they still got 
very good result in Ceredigion and very good result in the seats they held, but they still got their lowest share of the vote. Yeah, like they, they still went backwards, not forwards. Now, the question is, is will that hold in the Welsh Assembly elections? We don't know. There's two interesting questions. The first is, it's easy to say, you know, 2019 was absolutely cataclysmic for Welsh, Lab- Welsh Labour. Well, if you look at the 1983 result, actually the map of Wales looks remarkably similar. The swing seats in sort of south Wales, your bridge ends are blue. The Soydis aren't red wall is all blue in the in North Wales. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing is the interesting thing about this campaign and, and sort of noted by Welsh Labour MPs is that Mark Drakeford is still sort of untested as a national campaigner. If you look at the big set piece events, the big media set piece events of this campaign in Wales, you had you had there were, there were two or three televised debates. Nick Thomas Simmons, the Shadow Solicitor General, did one, and David and there was an, another one in North Wales, and da- poor David Hansen long-time MP for Dallin, former minister, did the one in North Wales, and he, and he lost his seat. You know, Mark Drakeford wasn't a very, in terms of the, set, the major set, media set pieces, he wasn't the face of the campaign in, in Wales in a way that Carwyn Jones was in, in, in general elections past. So that's an interesting live question is, how does Mark Drakeford rise to the occasion of his first proper national campaign where it is just the Mark Drakeford show? Yeah, I mean, so Anish, you've been out on the, you know, I can't remember which show, oh, I, I say I can't remember which, of course it was the 2016 Welsh elections, and you were out on the doors with Carwin. You know, that yeah, which was really interesting because at the time there was, you know, every politician high up in the Labour Party who you could interview was trying desperately to be diplomatically impolite about Jeremy Corbyn. So I'd really be interested to see what politicians like Drakeford now do, who were seen as sort of See, seen in the sort of Corbynite image, or elected yeah. in in the f- in the fury and the and the fire of Corbynism, how much do they distance themselves from him now? Considering you know the consensus appears to be that he was electorally sort of toxic for the Labour Party, because Carwin Jones did a, a clever thing that worked for a while, which was really dividing himself or or, or distancing himself from Labour in Westminster, which was particularly easy to do when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge, and that was one of the big messages from from that interview. That I did back then, and also from from what he was talking to people about on the doors. You know, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn was unpopular back then as well. That's one of the great ironies of Mark Drakeford's leadership, right? He was the architect of, as Roger Morgan's chief advisor, the architect of the Clear Red War strategy. But actually, the party moving in Mark Drakeford's direction. You know, the one, the only interesting thing I've ever heard a leader of the Welsh Conservative Party say was Paul Paul Davies, right? He's, he's one of the Davieses that is currently leading the Welsh Conservative oh. Party on the. Tory conference stage in 2018 said, you know, there's a there's a Welsh Labour leadership election going on at the minute, and you know, one of them is the architect of the Welsh NHS, one's a baroness, and another, and this was really perspicacious analysis, was a Corbynite before the term was coined, and which actually sums up Mark Draper really well. But yeah, he doesn't, he can't do clear red water because the party has or had moved to his ideological exactly ballpark. You know, the clear red water thing is just now we are Welsh. You know, will that? How how can he do that? Well, but I think the we are Welsh because I mean there are lots of interesting things about. And obviously, the, the timing meant it was unavoidable, and I wasn't there for the Scottish bit. But I find it really fascinating, right? That within the Labour Party's internal debate of, oh God, how are we going to get back any seats in Scotland? It's very rare to hear any acknowledgement of the fact that in 1999 you started with two political parties uh, who were dominant in those in those parts of the United Kingdom, and a strong nationalist party in second. Plykin Reid did better in 1999 and have done worse since then. I just think that it's slightly weird to me than this kind of continual thing where you have like, you know, these kind of remaining politicians for the shattered remnant of the Scottish Labour Party going, we know what it's about, we've just got to be really militant on this. And it's like, but 
it is nonetheless worth considering the counterfactual of you have devolution, you have a strong nationalist party, and you have, uh, uh, I mean, maybe I'm misremembering, and yeah, I know a lot of people in the world's government do listen to this, so if, if, I, if you have ever said this to me, you know, just do sort of angrily text me. I don't think I have spoken to a single Welsh government minister who would who would describe their commitment to the union as anything other than agnostic or pragmatic. Well, and Drakeford himself talks yeah. about it as an insurance policy, as a pooling of sovereignty in a way that really, really annoys. A complaint you hear from Welsh Labour MPs is that why are you oxygenating the idea that there can or should be a constitutional debate? But I think, but I think it, to me, it seems interesting than than the Welsh Labour Party's leadership has always had this kind of like maybe we could be for independence maybe we're not mm. and they have and that appears yeah I, d- I think you can't rule out the fact that 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 they have managed to contain like much more effectively than the labor party with its no never never not ever position has managed to contain the SNP I think, you know, to me, one of the other interesting questions about the election is the decisions Boris Johnson has made this week to... Well, so obviously the devolved institutions were going to vote against the Brexit deal as it currently exists because the SNP know that their model of independence is based, A, on independence in Europe, but crucially in a situation in which they leave the United Kingdom, but they both remain in the regulatory architecture of, of, of the European Union. It's a disaster for Scotland economically, makes the trade-offs of Scottish independence much more painful. It is just a bad, bad thing for all of their political and economic projects. For Wales, of course, the loss of the customs union, the fact that the backstop, well, the, the, new, the rebranded front stop, as it were, moves the, the border between the EU and the UK to Wales, again means that there are obvious reasons why they have to oppose it. But the other really interesting thing, and I don't think for a moment this is why Boris Johnson appointed Simon Hart. I think he appointed Simon Hart because he's influential within the parliamentary party. His endorsement was a key kind of moment that signified that the sort of middle of the Tory party was kind of coming to terms with Boris Johnson. And he is, you know, one of the most senior Welsh MPs. But I think, you know, Simon Hart is going to be a a tricky opponent for them because he's quite ebullient. He's not going to do the whole kind of like, how dare you wicked Welsh band smacking or, you know, rebrand RE to make it about teaching civics. Uh, He's not going to do any of that. But Adam Price wants to basically go, well, look at them. They're not fighting with the Secretary of State for Wales. And I think Mm. even though I don't think for a moment that Boris Johnson was sitting there going, oh, how can I make the Welsh (laughs) Labour Party's life more difficult? I think that the kind of the combination of a very ebullient Secretary of State for Wales and a very belligerent leader of Plaid Cymru feels like something which is going to make the Welsh Labour Party's life more difficult. But maybe this weird miracle will just continue on forever and ever and like years to come everyone will be like do you remember that weird period where like the one orthodox social democracy was in Wales and it still is <laughs> you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me Stephen Bush my colleague Anusha Kellyan with our political correspondents Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire our music is Devil by the Devil licensed under Creative Commons and I have finally come to terms with that fact it's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, why not subscribe? And if you already subscribe, thank you so much. The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. 
To meet this increasing demand, Highspeed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St. Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>